It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. That crazy starts with an earthquake, birds, snakes, and aeroplanes. Many brutes are not afraid. I have a freaking listen to yourself, the world with its own needs. Something to your own head, beat it up, and I've seen got no sheets. The lantern puts a platter with the fear fight down. Like fire in a fire, the citizens of the gang, the government for hire in the combat site. But you wasn't coming in a hurry, leave the jury beat it down your neck. Let's see the border trap and jump, get the ground, look at that low plane, find them. Up for overflow, five minutes in corners, but it'll be the secret devil, save the devil, where else can you know me? See your heart, tell me that the river in the river was the right. You patriotic, patriotic, plan might right, might feel it, it's pretty like It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it. Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Your source for information on how to succeed if everything else fails. And now, your hosts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. This is the Hour of Doom. And bloom! Oh boy, well you know what that means. That means that Nurse Amy is actually busy today. She is out and about with her daughters who are visiting from elsewhere. But don't hold it against me for goodness sake. I've got a lot of great information about survival medicine that I am going to impart to you and hopefully help you succeed when everything else fails. Well, you are listening to the Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Hour, a wild and woolly wonderland in a worrisome world. I'm Joe Alton, MD, also known as Dr. Bones of doomandbloom.net, where you'll find over 750 posts, videos, and podcasts on medical preparedness for any disaster. I'm a man, and I've got a plan, that's for sure. That's to put a medically prepared person in every family for any disaster. And my lovely... Nurse Amy, she is the hostess with the mostess, and she will be back. Don't you worry. She is just hanging out with her daughters. And, hey, who can really blame her for that? They live in Chicago and other places, and boy, oh boy, it is rare that we get to see them. So, But together, we are the watchers on the wall. We watch it all for you to find that silver lining in those storm clouds on the horizon. Friends and neighbors, have you been injured in an accident with an aggressive aardvark? Uh, Our attorney says, don't call me, call Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy and listen to this. All information given and opinions voiced on Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy's Survival Medicine Hour are for entertainment purposes only, and they don't represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. No contract or provider-patient relationship exists or is implied between the hosts and listeners We strongly urge our audience to seek modern and standard medical care, whatever and wherever it is available. But what are you going to do in a disaster when that rescue helicopter is nowhere to be seen and the ambulance is heading in the other direction? Well, you need to be self-reliant medically if you have to be. And you know what? I bet you can. We are here to help. That's for sure. So what's the deal We want to hear from you. We learn as much from you as you do from us. So connect with us. It's easy. 
You can contact us by email at drbonespodcast at aol.com. Find us on Facebook at our group, Survival Medicine, Dr. Bones, Nurse Amy. Join that group and you will get a lot of great information, not just from me, but from hundreds of other awesome people, a lot of them in the medical field. Of course, you can follow us on Twitter at Prepper Show. And don't forget our YouTube channel at Dr. Bones, Nurse Amy. We've got a lot of videos there. I'll bet you'll like them. And our video cast at AroundTheCabin.com. That's the first and third Wednesday of every month. Now, that's a lot. I understand. But you know what? That's not all. Make sure you head out to our website at doomandbloom.net. It's got everything you need to keep it together, even if everything else falls apart. And don't forget to check out our articles and all sorts of leading magazines, Survival Quarterly, Backwoods Home, American Survival Guide, Survivor's Edge, Prepare, Survival, oh boy, Survivalist, and all sorts of other magazines, as well as in links from over a thousand great preparedness websites throughout the internet. Now in the news, Super Lice, holy mackerel, have taken over 25 states in the U.S. They show no signs of slowing down. These are special lice that are now resistant to the major over-the-counter treatments, making them extremely difficult to get rid of. We talked about them just a few weeks ago before this story came out, as a matter of fact. And so just check out our archives and you'll see lice. Now, uh, in 2000, they would use things called pyrethroids. They actually use them still today. They would work 100% of the time back then, but you want to know something? Now... They only work in about 25% of cases. That's bad because lice are very, very common, especially around kids. Now, these super lice were first spotted in places like Virginia and Texas, but now they are seen in over 50% of the country. That is a big issue. Now, what can you do about these lice? Well, they're trying to figure out new ways to deal with them and to combat them. They have created a new weapon, and it's called air Allay, and this is obviously something from somewhere else, I guess, but uh, it's distributed at least by Lice Clinics of America, and they use heated air and dehydrate the lice and their eggs in a single treatment. It takes about an hour, and they guarantee that it, it will indeed, indeed work. It's an FDA-approved device, Air Ally, that's A-I-R-A-L-L-E, with a accent on the E, so I guess it's Air LA, and it does cost about 170 bucks. But you want to know something? It's probably covered by insurance. Uh, prescription medicine and or combing, of course, can get rid of the super creatures, but that's a prescription medicine. What are you going to do in times of trouble? The best option, of course, is to prevent it. You want to share. Nothing like hats, hairbrushes, anything that comes in contact with hair or somebody else's head. And that's how the lice are transferred. We're talking about head lice. There are body lice and there are pubic lice as well. I'm not sure if the air alley device works on it. I, it. I'm guessing that it's like a big hair dryer from the old days and uh, it just fries them. In your hair. I'm for sure it's not great for your hair either, but don't worry, you'll grow some more. Now, if someone in your family does get lice, uh, you make sure you have to wash bedding in hot water, uh, put any stuffed animals and clothing in a hot dryer. That is something that 
is important. So watch out for these super lice. They are a problem. Now, you know, there is something that is not in the news, but I'll bet that you knew about it and spent a lot of time thinking about it about five years ago. This is the anniversary anniversary of the Fukushima tsunami, earthquake, and nuclear facility disaster where there were all sorts of meltdowns and all sorts of stuff. A devastating tsunami engulfed the northeastern coast of Japan five years ago, and it triggered the worst nuclear disaster since Chernobyl in 1986. Now, they had a 10-meter 10 10-meter 10 high seawall. That's a 30-foot high seawall, and that tsunami actually was able to pour zillions of gallons of water over that seawall and knocked out electricity at the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant, caused all sorts of cooling systems to fail, and half of the uranium cores overheated in that entire uh, reactor setup. It, they had actually a number of reactors there, not just one. Now, there were hydrogen explosions, there were all sorts of terrible things happened, uh, and it damaged at least three of the reactor buildings, vented nuclear uh, radioactive materials into the air, and that caused about 160,000 people to have to evacuate their homes. And you may think that, well, that was five years ago. Things are awesome today. But you want to know something? Today, the disaster site is still in crisis mode. Former residents aren't going to be returning anytime soon to this area. And I'm sure they found new lives at this point, but it's just amazing how much of of, of that island, and believe me, it's not a big country, is actually at high radiation levels still. Um, even more troublesome, the problem is that it's going on today. It's still ongoing is that it's still producing dangerous nuclear waste. The Tokyo Electric Power Company uh, circulates water through these three melted units in an effort to keep them cool. And what that does is it generates an endless supply of radioactive water. And groundwater that flows from a hill near the uh, crippled plant is now mingling these radioactive materials before the water in that hill actually heads into the sea. So it's still going all sorts of different places, and it's an issue. Now, the Electric Power Company of, of Tokyo collects all this contaminated water and they store it in tanks. Storing, They store these things in tanks at the rate of 400 metric tons a day. I mean, how many of these tanks could they possibly have? I mean, they have to be huge. Lately, the water's been processed to try to reduce the number of radioactive materials that are in them, but they still contain high concentrations of something called tritium, which is a radioactive isotope of hydrogen. There are all sorts of disputes as to where this water, the radioactive water and all this tritium is actually going to eventually go, but they're trying to store it, and that doesn't make a lot of sense. And you have to think about, it's not just the water. I mean, there's all these millions of tons of contaminated topsoil and there's also all sorts of solid waste from 
the disaster. And of course, there's still the uranium fuel itself. That uranium fuel is going to last for a very, very long time. And don't think that this hasn't affected, affected the health of the people over there. There are already an increase in thyroid cancers among the children who have lived who had lived in Fukushima at the time of the disaster. And that's exactly what happened during Chernobyl. And there were thousands of cases of thyroid cancers, especially in young people, that occurred after that disaster. And we can expect the same thing to happen in Japan for the kids that lived near Fukushima at that time. And they're still saying, of course, they're hedging their bets, and they're saying, well, they, we don't know if those cases can be attributed to the accident. I'm telling you that they are. Now, their government does plan to recommit to nuclear power. Guess what? There are no nuclear nuclear reactors that are actually on. They turned them off, and they are now considering restarting the country's nuclear power plants. They were all taken offline following the disaster, and so far they have now brought two of them back up. Now, who knows when the next tsunami is going to occur in Japan. Apparently, it's something that occurs from time to time, but we can expect more news in the future regarding Fukushima, even if the press isn't interested anymore. In more news, wow, we got a lot, a lot of news this week. Zika virus. The Zika virus is now finding its way to the U.S., and there have been at least 150 cases that have been identified, and at least, uh, I think, a dozen of them are in pregnant women, and this is something that we're going to have to see what's going on. None of them have delivered, apparently, as yet, and I'm hoping that there won't be any issue. They should be able to identify if there are problems using uh, ultrasounds, but it's hard to say whether some of these women are further along, far enough along in their pregnancy to really be able to see these things. Now, as an obstetrician in the early part of my career, I'll tell you that sonograms are things that are wonderful. I mean, they, they'll tell you when there are twins, they'll tell you that the baby has all its fingers and toes, but they'll also tell you when things are bad as well. And sure enough, they have identified that in Brazil, were over 4,000 cases of microcephaly, a birth defect in which the brain case doesn't grow, and of course, as, that, as a result, doesn't allow the brain to grow while the baby is in the uterus. And so this has led to an epidemic of microcephalic newborns in Brazil. Now, so far, that's not panning out in a lot of other countries, and so some people are wondering if Zika is indeed the cause of it. There are lots of other uh, theories. Some believe that uh, the, te the tetanus, diphtheria, and pertussis vaccine may be the cause because in 2014, uh, the government started pushing that vaccine on pr for pregnant ladies down there. But it's hard to say. I mean, we, ha we use that vaccine here as well, but we use it later in the pregnancy, possibly after the, the risk period for microcephaly has occurred. So there is always that possibility. There are a lot of other conspiracy theories that you'll find all, as well. And there is something to some of them, very possibly, but it's hard to say what is going on. The government hasn't, 
the government and the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, they strongly believe that Zika is indeed related to the, this rise. And indeed, they think that there have been over a million cases in South America, North, Central America, and the Caribbean, so much so that countries like El Salvador are actually recommending that their female population does not get pregnant for the next two years. That is an, an extraordinary recommendation by the government. You just don't see it anywhere else. From the standpoint of the U.S., we are warning people not that are considering pregnancy or who are pregnant to not go into that area, into areas of where Zika outbreaks have occurred. And that's tough to do because uh, they just had carnival or carnival, as they call it. And guess where the Summer Olympics is going to be? It's going to be, sure enough, in Brazil. So there are going to be people from all over the world that wind up getting probably the Zika virus, at least the acute phase. Luckily, the acute phase is actually just sort of a flu-like syndrome. Some people get some joint pain. Some people get uh, pink eye from it, believe it or not. And hopefully that's going to be it. And as a matter of fact, 80% of people that have the Zika virus, uh, they actually have no symptoms whatsoever. So it's a tough one because if, let's say, you have a, a virus that doesn't cause symptoms in 80% of people but can cause birth defects, how does a pregnant woman who has no symptoms know that she's going to be at risk? Now, in Brazil, they don't have the widespread availability of all of this high technology ultrasounds and stuff to follow the baby. So I think that a number of these cases have been sort of surprises. And in other cases, uh, they just don't have, I don't think they have the resources to be able to really handle a large amount of pregnant women. And there are at least 500,000 of them pregnant at any one time in the country of Brazil, not to mention the rest of Latin America. And I'll tell you, it is going to be an issue if we continue to see uh, these increases in birth defects like microcephaly. Sure enough, the uh, country of Brazil has about 150 cases on a normal year, and this time around, they have more than 4,000. There's something going on there, and we don't know exactly what's happening. Luckily, Unlike what happened in the Ebola epidemic in 2014, the CDC is actually taking this one seriously and it's doing everything it can to help out in terms of mosquito control in the affected areas and especially putting together a plan together, uh, putting a plan for the United States so that communities can avoid issues like this. Despite this, there are a number of cases, uh, including one case of microcephaly in the state of Hawaii, but it has been seen everywhere from New York to Hawaii. And so we can expect anywhere that mosquitoes can live, at least the Aedes mosquito, which is a type of mosquito that, that passes this uh, virus onto humans, anywhere that they can live, sure enough, will be an issue. And not only is this a tropical country issue, and of course, for areas like Florida, where we live, it, it was certainly an issue. But species or, or numbers of Aedes mosquitoes seem to be able to live through 
winters. As a matter of fact, there is a population in Washington, D.C. that has survived at least four winters there so far. And they believe they go into undergrounds and other places where it's warmer. Or they lay their eggs. And the eggs apparently are very, very hardy and can live for a year. And if they can live for a year, they can go through a winter and survive it. And sure enough, uh, in the spring or when the first rains come, they can pop out all sorts of those nasty bugs. Matter of fact, the term Aedes, A-E-D-E-S, which is the name of the species of mosquito that passes Zika, sure enough, its name in Greek comes from the Greek for the word unpleasant. So unpleasant it is. And we still have a lot to learn about Zika. I'm actually writing a book about it. I'm going to call it the Zika virus handbook, just an inform, just just for information purposes. And by the way, I'm discussing it in a calm and rational manner. It's not a fear mongering book. It's not going to be a very long book either, but because we know so little about Zika. But also, we're going to be talking about pandemic diseases in it and how to put together an effective sick room for times of trouble. So keep an eye out. We'll update you on the Zika virus from time to time as new stuff becomes available. And this is something that I think it's important for us to really watch out for and just be more prepared for it than we were for the Ebola epidemic. Now we'll be right back. I'm just going to Take a short break, and you're listening to the Survival Medicine Hour with Joe Alton, MD, also known as Dr. Bones, and I wish the lovely nurse Amy, she'll be back next week. We'll be right back. Are you worried about how dangerous the world has become? In these days of terrorist attacks, natural disasters, or even a future collapse, you need to be medically prepared to keep your family safe. I'm Joe Alton, MD of store.doomandbloom.net, where you'll find an entire line of uniquely designed medical kits and supplies for when help is not on the way. For everything from individual first aid kits to the ultimate family medical bag, go to store.doomandbloom.net today. That's store.doomandbloom.net. You'll be glad you did. And indeed, we are back as promised. You're listening to the Survival Medicine Hour with Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. You sure enough have heard a just heard a new ad by us for our store. And I am putting that together not just for our podcast, but also for a new show that we're going to be putting together called Survival America Radio that's going to be on Genesis Communications. Uh, network and it's going to have a lot of great information but it's also going to have some of our opinions oh boy and they are going to be no holds barred and if you're interested in that we'll we'll be putting that up uh, in the early part of March we'll tell you more about that as as time goes on but we're doing some special stuff and some of it is just our way of Letting off steam. Because, hey, if you don't let off steam, that stays inside you. That is bad, bad, bad. Take it from a doctor. He will tell you that that is something that you need to do every so often. Let off a little steam. I want to talk a little bit about asthma today. I haven't spoken about that in I don't know how long. And so I want to talk about asthma and everything that you need to know 
with regards to it. You know, asthma is a chronic condition. It limits your ability to breathe. I guess everybody knows that. And it affects your airways. Your airways are uh, the windpipe and the bronchi, uh, the bronchuses or the bronch bronchi. These things fan out and become smaller airways called bronchioles and they end up in things called alveoli. Alveoli are little air sacs and that's where your body absorbs oxygen and if you didn't have them then you would be dead and if you think about the respiratory airway tree it's sort of like it's like a it's like a tree in which the windpipe and the main uh, bronchus is the trunk and then it spreads out and looks pretty much like the roots of a tree so think you can think about it that way now, when people with asthma are exposed to a substance to which they have an allergy, and we call things that cause allergies allergens, airways become swollen, they become filled with mucus, and your airways are actually controlled, or their diameter is controlled by certain muscles in your body called smooth muscles. And these smooth muscles uh, surround your airways, and they actually constrict as a result of your exposure to the allergen and guess what as a result air can't pass through to reach the alveoli the part of the lungs that uh, absorbs oxygen now during an episode of asthma you're going to find the people get short of breath especially when they are uh, exhaling uh, there'll be tightness in their chest they start to wheeze and cough uh, this is referred to as an asthma attack. In rare circumstances, the airways become so constricted that a person could actually suffocate from lack of air, and that is actually called status asthmaticus. And I remember one woman that had severe asthma. We had treated her. Uh, this was also very early in my career. Uh, she was a pregnant woman, and we treated her, and we were able to get her better, and she decided that she needed to leave, and and so I said, you cannot leave if you don't continue this treatment. You may die because your asthma may come back and it may become uncontrollable. And she said to me something I'll never forget. Well, I have children at home that are alone. I've got to go. And so she actually signed a, a form called uh, an uh, Against Medical Advice form or an AMA form. She left AMA. And sure enough, she came back the following day in what we call status asthmaticus, and she indeed died. I actually had to do a cesarean section uh, on her as they called her uh, her death and delivered a baby that also did not survive. So this is a serious serious thing it can get really bad so let's talk a little bit more about it here are, i'll never forget it it affects me to this day here are common allergens that trigger an asthma attack now pet wild animal dander this is something that you'll you'll find especially if you don't keep the house clean and you try to especially for hair and all that stuff that's an issue we have a parrot and our parrot actually has dander too so, you know, any kind of animal has some kind of dander, some kind of either cells from their skin, skin that they uh, molt or they, or, or, or they extrude. You do too, by the way. And also, 
And also they have hair and all sorts of other things that you can come in contact with that may contain allergens. Of course, dust will do that too. Uh, dust mites, you have some of those, I guarantee it, in your bed. They eat dead skin cells. That's what they do. And uh, their excrement is something that can be a trigger for an asthma attack. Of course, mold and mildew. We have big issues with black mold in our place and we had to replace an entire kitchen. That's a mess. Uh, smoke will do it. Uh, pollens will do it. Uh, pollutants in the air. Some medicines will even do it. And of course, if you're under severe stress, you may, and you have a tendency to have these types of attacks that may bring it on too. And the strange thing is that if you are an athlete, significant exercise will also do that. So there are a lot of things that will cause asthma attacks. Now, there are a lot of myths associated with asthma, and so let's talk about a little bit about those. Um, some people think asthma is contagious. That is silly uh, and completely false. So that's one thing that you can not worry about if you have a family member with asthma. You're not going to get it because of that. You, uh, some people think that you'll grow out of asthma. Well, sure enough, uh, it could become dormant for a time, but you're always at risk for it returning. It can always return. Now, some people say that if you move to a new area, your asthma may go away. And the truth of the matter is it might go away for a while if the allergen isn't there. But if you're already sensitized to something, you can you have a tendency to become sensitized to, to a trigger. You may become sensitized to another trigger as well. So you can, if you become sensitized to something else, it could very easily return. Some people aren't just allergic to one thing, they're allergic to a bunch of things. Now, another myth is that it's all in your mind. No, there are such things as panic attacks, but those are not asthma attacks. Now, here's a true myth. Now, asthma indeed is hereditary. So sure enough, if both parents have asthma, you've got about a 70% chance of developing it compared to only, well, maybe about 5 or 6% if you don't have anybody in the family or your parents never had it. So it indeed has a hereditary component. They're still trying to figure out a little bit more about that. There's always research going on in medicine, and uh, it's amazing from year to year what new things we learn, some things that we learn and then we unlearn because we find out that they're not true, and those things are... Uh, yeah, I don't, but wait a minute. Don't don't think that they're going to next year decide that cigarette smoke is not is not hazardous to your health. It is, so don't smoke, people. That's important. Now let's talk about um, asthma symptoms. They can be different, by the way, from attack to attack, uh, from individual to individual. Uh, some of these symptoms you can also see in heart conditions, other respiratory illnesses. So it's important to be able to make the right diagnosis. Uh, you'll see cough, you'll see shortness of breath and wheezing. By the way, for people who don't know what wheezing is, it sounds like this. <laughs> sounds like that. Actually, it sounds more, the wheezing is more noticeable during expiration as opposed to inhalation. But that's what it sounds like. And it has a, when you listen to it with the stethoscope, it has a very musical sound. So if you want to hear what an asthma attack sounds like under the stethoscope, and if you're going to be a medic, you need to be able to recognize this, I want you to go to my article that, called Understanding Asthma. It's relatively recent on the website, and it has a video, which is essentially an audio, that just 
allows you to listen to these musical sounds that occur in the lungs when you are dealing with asthma. Of course, there's chest tightness. Some people sometimes consider it uh, similar to that of a heart attack, but uh, there's a, a lot of differences between one and the other, but uh, that is what people who have panic attacks sometimes feel they're having a heart attack. Uh, uh, when you have asthma, your pulse rate goes up, your respiration goes up. Now, the question is whether it goes up as a result of your body not having enough oxygen and having to speed up the circulation in an effort to try to get more oxygen or whether it's because you become agitated, you become nervous. I mean, if, if you can't breathe, I would become nervous if I couldn't breathe, so that happens too. And speaking of anxiety, that's also one of the main things with asthma. You see anybody who's having an asthma attack is going to be very anxious. Now, besides these symptoms, there's going to be a lot of other things that are a signal of a major episode. Now, the, the, a life-threatening episode of asthma is going to cause what we call cyanosis. Cyanosis is when your body's not getting enough oxygen and it has a certain look. The people that are cyanotic have, start turning a little blue. Now, when they turn blue, they turn blue usually, be, they first turn blue in a number of specific areas. The fingertips are one of them. Uh, their lips are one of them. Their face has, has a tendency to look like that. Some newborns actually are born naturally with some cyanosis in their, finger, in their fingertips or their hands or their feet. These are things that are not, not too uncommon. They usually don't mean anything uh, bad as long as there's the ability to give them either some oxygen or to get them to cry to get some air into their lungs. So that's why they... In the old days, used to slap infants. They don't do that, by the way, anymore. It actually is much more effective if you just rub the back of the baby, vigorously rub the back of the baby. It'll get the baby to cry. You don't have to pick it up by the feet and slap it on the fanny. Now, make sure that you have a stethoscope as part of your medical supplies. If you don't have a stethoscope, you're not going to be effective as a medic. You've got to be able to listen to the lungs and identify not only asthma, but you have to be able to identify pneumonia, you have to be able to identify other issues. And so we talk about, we'll talk about that in other podcasts, but stethoscope, gotta have it. Make sure you have one, and uh, there are a lot of different resources that we have that help you identify, that will help you identify various respiratory conditions. Now, the thing with asthma, is when you're listening on a, with a stethoscope, if you're hearing these loud musical noises, that means there is some air that's still passing through. But as, as the asthma worsens, there's less air passing through the airways. And what happens to these wheezes, these musical sounds I was talking about, is that they become higher in pitch. So a asthma attack, you may sound... <sighs> But a real bad asthma attack will sound, <laughs> will sound like that. I know it sounds ridiculous for me to pretend to do asthma attack sounds, but it sort of sounds like that. It really, it really does. And the bad thing is if you don't hear anything, then no air might, in somebody that's having a significant asthma attack, you might not have any air passing through them. That person is in trouble. Now, sometimes the person becomes so anxious that they become short of breath and they think they're having an asthma attack. I mentioned that. 
Uh, now, you need to resolve this question. Now, what you might ha consider for your medical supplies is something that will identify how open airways are, what's naturally, what's normal for a person, and what happens during an asthma attack. And this uh, instrument is called a peak flow meter. Now, a peak flow meter measures the ability of your lungs to expel air. And that's, of course, a major issue for an asthmatic, as you can imagine. And it'll tell you if a patient's cough is part of an asthma attack or whether they're just having a panic attack. I'm just saying just, but I mean, those can be pretty significant. But whether it's asthma or not asthma. So what I recommend is every member of the group, whoever you're going to be medically responsible for in times of trouble, you want to determine what's normal. What's a normal peak flow rate for a member of your group? So what you should do is get a peak flow meter. These you can find anywhere online. You can document these measurements. What they do is put, uh, you put the thing in your mouth or have your patient put the thing in their mouth and there's a specific mouthpiece and forcefully exhale into it. And that'll give you a measurement. It has actually a, uh, an actual measurement that occurs. It's not digital or anything like that. So you'll be able to use it even if you're off the grid. Now, when you do that, you'll know what their baseline measurement is. Once their baseline peak flow measurement is known, write it down somewhere. You absolutely need to know these things. You should do that with every member of your group. And that way, if they develop shortness of breath, you can have them blow into it again and identify if their peak flow has dropped. For example, in moderate asthma, peak flow will be reduced probably 20 to 40%. And more than 50% is a sign of a severe episode. Now, if there's a non-related asthma, cough, or an upper respiratory infection, that peak flow measurement is going to be pretty close to normal. And the same goes with a panic attack. You may feel very short of breath during a panic attack, but if you check your peak flow measurement, it's still about normal. So that's something that will help you... Uh, make a what we call a differential diagnosis what what direction you're going with with in terms of what your patient actually has now to treat asthma i guess the cornerstone of asthma treatment really is prevention right it's ounce of prevention's worth a pound of cure and for you worth a lot of headaches uh, avoiding a lot of headaches now speaking of avoiding you want to avoid as part of your prevention trigger allergens so if you figure out what people are allergic to, for goodness sake, do not expose them or do not put them in situations where, if you can help it, where they are exposed to these allergens. And so we want to maintain normal airways. That would be another thing. And there are a lot of different medicines that do that. Uh, there are drugs that give quick relief from an asthma attack itself, these inhalers, and there are drugs that control the frequency of asthmatic attacks over time. Some of these can be pills. Now, quick relief drugs are called bronchodilators. A dilation is when something opens up. Uh, in other words, when you're having a baby, your cervix dilates and allows the baby's head to go through. And these bronchodilators essentially open or dilate airways. Some of these are albuterol. Uh, uh, I think brand names for them are Ventolin, Proventil. There are a lot of them. Uh, these Drugs should open airways in a very short period of time and give you some pretty significant relief. 
Now, these drugs are sometimes useful for people going into a situation where they know they're going to be exposed to a trigger, uh, such as before strenuous exercise if you're an athlete that gets it when you're exercising uh, a lot. Now, don't be surprised. These medicines actually cause a very rapid heart rate. And it's a very common side effect, and it's something that if, if it allows you to breathe, you may have to just deal with. Now, if you find yourself using quick-relief asthma medications more than twice a week, you might need some kind of daily control therapy. And these drugs work when they're taken daily. Uh, they decrease the number of episodes that are usually some form, and they're usually some form of inhaled steroid. Uh, they're long-acting bronchodilators as well. Uh, Atrovent is one of them. And there's another family of drugs that are called leukotriene modifiers. You don't have to remember that. But they prevent airway swelling before an asthma attack even begins. These are in pill form. That's good because they can make sense for storage purposes better than inhalers in a sense, although you should have inhalers as well. They'll just last, the pills will just last longer in terms of their potency. And Singulair is a common brand name for a, uh, an asthma long-term treatment that will decrease the frequency. Uh, some medicines are used in combination. Uh, you might find multiple medicines in the same inhaler. There's all, sorts, there's all sorts of stuff. So it's important to figure out what tri allergens trigger your asthma attacks. Work out a plan to avoid them as much as you can. And make sure to stockpile as much of your asthma medicine as possible in, in, for, for emergencies. Ask your doctor, can I have an extra prescription for, in case there's an emergency where I just can't reach you. And physicians are usually pretty sympathetic to request for extra, extra prescriptions uh, from their asthmatic patients. Now, in, their mild, in the mild or moderate cases, actually some natural remedies might actually work. And there are actually quite a few substances that are reported to be helpful. Helpful. I don't have hard data on a lot of it, but uh, there's one, ginger, for example, a study published in the American Journal of Respiratory Cell and Molecular Biology, wow, that's a mouthful, indicates that ginger is instrumental in inhibiting chemicals that constrict airways. And they've used them on animals and found that extracts of ginger can help asthmatic symptoms in rodents. I don't know how they did that, or I've never seen a rodent with asthma, but it can happen. So this is something that's either used as a tea or as an extract. Use it a couple of times a day. Some people add, add garlic to it, garlic cloves and some ginger tea while it's hot. You cool it down and you drink it twice a day, and that might be helpful as well. I'd add some honey if I were you, uh, as long as you're not allergic to honey. Now, uh, ephedra, coltsfoot, codonopsis, butterbur, nettle, chamomile, rosemary, they've all been used in the past also as teas to uh, uh, improve an asthma attack. By the way, tea only refer the word tea actually only refers to uh, a camellia species, and believe it or not, green, black, white, oolong tea, all of that comes from one species, and, and you really... It's really in, incorrect to call other herbal teas teas. They're probably better called infusions. There's actually a word for, for that type of herbal tea. It's called the teasane, T-I-S-A-N-E. Now, coffee, black unsweetened coffee, that's a stimulant. might make your lungs function better when you're having an attack. That's something you can do, but don't drink more than about 12 ounces at a time. And coffee can dehydrate you. 
But the interesting thing about coffee is coffee is pretty similar in chemical structure to an asthma drug, a theophylline. And so maybe that is why that works. Now, eucalyptus, essential oil of eucalyptus, you have to use that either as a steam inhalation, put some, a few drops of essential oil of eucalyptus in water, heat it up, get some steam going, and breathe it in. Now, if, when you breathe something in for steam inhalation, put a towel over your head so that you can get more of it in your system. If you don't have a way to, to do that, just rub a few drops of eucalyptus oil between your hands, rub them together, breathe in deeply. So that's something that might be useful. Now, honey, some people, a raw and processed honey, I'll tell you, has so many different uses. And sure enough, it was used in the 19th century to treat asthmatic attacks. And I have that in some of our uh, 19th century medical books that we collect. And so this is something that might help. Uh, one teaspoon of honey in a glass of water or in your tea, that might be useful. Drink it three times daily. Now, of course, some people might be allergic to certain honeys because, of course, they have different pollens that are that may be in it. So you have to be aware of that. Uh, turmeric, uh, if you take a teaspoon of turmeric powder, put it in six to eight ounces of warm water three times a day, that might help. Licorice and ginger together might help. Half a teaspoon of each in a cup of water, that might work. By the way, licorice raises your blood pressure, so don't do that if you have high blood pressure. Uh, some people have a mixture of black pepper, onion, and honey. Uh, just a, maybe a quarter cup of that on, onion juice, tablespoon of honey, a, and a, maybe like a pinch or maybe an eighth of a teaspoon of black pepper. That might work also. Uh, mustard oil and camphor, and put that on your chest and back. That might be helpful. Uh, some people say that it gives pretty quick relief. A ginkgo biloba. Uh, the leaf extract is thought to decrease hypersensitivity in the lungs, and this is pretty good. The only problem is you can't use it if you're on blood thinners. Uh, some asthmatics have been diagnosed as having a vitamin D deficiency. Vitamin D is uh, indeed, you, if you don't spend a lot of time outside, you may need some vitamin D. So not a bad idea to take vitamin D once in a while, not necessarily daily, but once in a while to make sure you're getting enough of that. Now, one interesting herbal product that I saw is called lobelia. Lobelia is a herb that theoretically was smoked by Native Americans as a treatment for asthma. Now, that is pretty kooky, smoking as a treatment for asthma. So I would say instead of smoking, try a mixture of the tincture of lobelia with a tincture of cayenne and put it together maybe like in a three, three parts of lobelia to one part of cayenne and uh, take about a milliliter, about 20 drops of this mixture in water at the start of an attack and see how it works, repeat it about every 30 minutes or so. There's a lot of research that's necessary, I've got to tell you, to determine the amount of effect each of the above remedies will have on severe asthma. Remember that, remember that a lot of essential oils, for example, or the strength of them and the quality of them depends on a lot of factors, weather conditions uh, at the, on the fields, uh, soil conditions in the fields, uh, what time of year they might be harvested, what parts of the plant are harvested. So there's going to be a big variation in the effect that people get. Of course, there's always the difference of from individual to individual. So it's important to know that. Now, I want you not to underestimate the effect of diet 
on asthma. Asthmatics should do a few things with their diet to decrease the chances of their getting attacks. And one is to replace animal proteins with plant proteins. It may not be much of a vegetarian kind of person, but if you're having major problems with that, decrease animal proteins. Uh, increase your intake of omega-3 fatty acids. Uh, you want to eliminate milk, other dairy products. I think that's a pretty good idea. A lot of people are not rea don't react well to milk, and so that's that's an issue. Uh, eat organic organically whenever possible because goodness knows there's pesticides and antibiotics, all sorts of stuff that's in a lot of food. And if you can eat organically when you can, that will probably give you a good chance of avoiding a problem. Trans fats, by the way, are bad for asthma. Use extra virgin olive oil as your main cooking oil. If you, if, if, uh, you have some of that around, that is best. And always stay well hydrated. Remember that you get a lot of lung secretions in the airways, also mucus in the airways when you have asthma. And when uh, you can get those secretions to be looser or less viscous, you know, and staying well hydrated will help you do that. Well, then that is something that's going to be very helpful for you as well. Also, think about various relaxation techniques. These are important things, breathing methods that you might learn in yoga classes. They're supposed to, well, not only promote well-being in general, but they will certainly control the anxiety that an asthma attack will cause and of course they're good for panic attacks too so actually pretty good for a couple of couple of different things and amazingly acupuncture is thought by some to have some promise as well as treating a condition so there's certainly options for you both of course standard conventional options talk to your doctor see what might make the most sense for you or for your loved one that has asthma but consider some of these alternatives as well you want to know something it's so important to be able to use all of the tools in the woodshed that is something that i think is really really important and we want you to do that oh you know we didn't get a chance this time around to thank all the awesome people in various networks prepper networks that replay our show we always want to thank these guys g-man glenn from American Prepper Network, their, their network's called the Prepper Broadcasting Network. They have an extraordinary lineup of shows that have great hosts and great, great guests, and I really want you to support them. Also, the USA Emergency Broadcast Network, those guys are awesome as well. Survival Central Radio has a lot of options in terms of great shows, and our good friend Annie Olivo uh, with her shake and wake radio and i think that if you can check any of these out you'll find some very interesting shows and there's bound there's something for everybody on these believe me and we really we really appreciate their confidence and putting up our shows and we hope that you will take a moment to listen in uh, we are pretty much well well that was pretty fast so I, I think we are just about out of time. I want to thank everybody for putting up with me and just me without the lovely nurse Amy this time around. I hope it wasn't too boring for you. I hope you got some information that might be useful for you. That's basically what our thing is, and I will 
See you next week with the lovely Nurse Amy. And please make sure to tune in. We've got all sorts of exciting things that we're doing uh, this year. And we are just, I'll tell you, we're uh, hopping. We're, we're dancing as fast as we can. And we're feverishly working to get you medically prepared for any disaster. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see, we'll see you next week.